Hey guys, it's Lisa. So I wanted to give you guys a quick update. Um, me and the housewife historian, Jessica Lindsay, uh, which you guys, if you guys are into the whole Bravo franchise, uh, she has a great YouTube channel. Go check her out. That's the housewife historian. Um, we are going to be teaming up to do a podcast together. We are in the works with that. So we're going to, you know, come up with some great episodes, some, you know, great talking topics. And I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, right now, I have just recently PCS. We are in Fort Campbell. Fort Campbell, what the hell am I talking about? We are in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And um, I, I was thinking about Fort Campbell because that was actually one of the places that I live that I really enjoy living on a military post but at Fort Leavenworth not so much <laughs> I don't know if there's any military spouses out there listening to me but yeah this has been by far the crappiest PCS move ever um, and Fort Leavenworth is definitely not a place that I would recommend as a location as a base to go to <laughs> but um Moving on, yeah, I am really looking forward to uh, co-hosting with Lindsay, the housewife historian. We're going to have some great topics that we're going to be talking about. So more on that um, update in another episode or later on. But for today, we are going to talk about a true crime where the mastermind is kind of a moron. Uh, his name is Joshua Torres. And this was a crime that was committed in 1995. If you guys just heard that beep, that was Ashley Lindsay texting me. So sorry, but I am not re-recording this episode all the way from the beginning. So you guys are just going to have to deal with the occasional beeping noises. If you hear it, it's from my phone. Again, I have no furniture. I'm like sitting on bare carpet right now waiting for my furniture to arrive. But I wanted to do this episode because I have not put out a new episode yet. Anyway, so let's get into it. This is a case that has always stuck with me a bit because of the gruesomeness of the crime, let alone the fact that the man who prosecutors said was behind the evilness was actually a friend of the victim. When you add the stupidity of the perpetrators, it makes the case even more senseless and just unfortunate in every sense of the word. Okay, so 20-year-old Kimberly Antonokos, I hope I pronounced that right. I, I think it's pronounced Antonokos. Um, she disappeared in the early morning of March 1st, 1995 from Queens, New York. She, okay, so this, she, she actually didn't disappear from Queens. She lived in Brooklyn. Um, she lived in the Brooklyn, in, in a very nice Brooklyn neighborhood. Where she was murdered was in Queens, uh, which is my hometown. And the area that she actually died in was in Woodhaven, Queens which um, I'm also familiar with that area because I actually lived in Woodhaven for a few years when I was a very young child. And one of the reasons why this crime resonated with me so much was it, it was kind of like a trauma bond that I felt I had with Kimberly, the victim, because, um, okay, so all of all of the, like, the most miserable, that was Lindsay again. Sorry, like I said, you're going to be hearing beepings. She's texting me. I'm not restarting this episode. I'm not re-recording re this episode. So just deal with the beepings. Um, 
So when I was a child, the worst traumas that I've experienced as a child happened when I lived in Woodhaven. So I, I felt that connection with Kimberly. Anyway, um, so Kimberly was the daughter of divorced parents and her father was a very successful businessman. He was in the business of computers and um, in 1995, that was booming. That was like when everybody still had AOL and you remember you had to like connect your computer to like the freaking telephone outlet. I don't know, you younger people will have no idea what I'm talking about, but you know, the millennials will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you guys remember AOL and that yeah well anyway this was back then and you know the internet was becoming big getting online was big you know the AOL chat rooms and the IMs that was all big it was a in 1995 that industry was booming it was huge okay so within hours it seems that Kimberly's father, Thomas Antonokos, knew his daughter was missing and contacted the police. Um, the search began and many of Kimberly's friends helped search for her, including a man named Joshua Torres. Joshua, his girlfriend and baby mama, um, their young toddler was staying with Kimberly. I think the toddler at that time was three years old. Um, at the time she disappeared, at the time that Kimberly disappeared, Joshua, his baby mama, and his three-year-old daughter was staying with Kimberly. Um, they had gotten kicked out of the baby mama's aunt's house. And so um, they were staying with Kimberly in her apartment because she had like a two-bedroom apartment in Brooklyn. Um, so they were staying with Kimberly at the time she disappeared while they waited for their new apartment to be ready to move in. Supposedly, they were waiting for the apartment to be painted. For almost four days, there, was, there were no clues as to where Kimberly could have vanished or where she was at. Then in the late night of March 4th, firefighters were called to a fire at an abandoned home in Queens in... Um, in Woodhaven, Queens. After the fire was put out, a body was found inside the basement of the home tied to a chair. The body would later be identified as Kimberly Antonokos. An autopsy would determine that she, that, that's my son running around. Again, no furniture. We're just going to have to make do with this episode. Sorry guys, but this is just reality. <laughs> um, okay, so let's see. An autopsy would determine that she had been alive when the fire occurred, although she was conscious and although she was conscious, she was alive when she was burned to death. So she was basically burnt alive. Her car would be found some few days later um, out in, I think, Nassau or Suffolk County. Um, and then there was a break in the case in um, September of 1995. So we're going to get into that um you know i'm kind of like all over the place with this because this this i i don't know like this just really kind of um burned alive to a shocking true story of betrayal kidnapping and murder okay this was the only book that i could find about this true crime and that is the title of the book 
It is called Burned Alive, A Shocking True Story of Betrayal, Kidnapping, and Murder. I'm not even sure if the book is in print anymore. You might be able to find it at your local library, or you could get the Kindle edition of it. That was how I was able to read it. I was only able to get um, the Kindle edition. I was not able to get like an actual physical copy of the book. But again, maybe you could find it at your local library. If not, it is available on Amazon on Kindle. Okay. As with most true crime fascination of mine, like I said, I discovered this one because I was watching one of my shows as usual. And this one stuck out to me. There was several shows that had this crime on it too. They've already done, um, you know, the episodes on it. It was especially of interest to me because the crime was in New York City. I mean, there's tons of crimes in New York City, but this one related to me more than gang violence, drug crimes, terrorism, human trafficking, etc. She was so young, too. I think that stuck out the most with me. She was only 20 years old when she died. 20-year-old Kim Antonokos was returning to her Brooklyn apartment after a night of clubbing with a friend. She was the envy of those who knew her personally and a true daddy's girl. But on her way home in the early morning of the that year's Ash Wednesday, so that year, 1995, that year's Ash Wednesday, Kim was abducted and her mysterious kidnappers turned out to be those she welcomed into her home. She was actually abducted as she pulled into the garage of her home. Kim's father, a well-to-do businessman named Tommy Antonokos, had no idea that her abductors and murderers were right under his nose. A loser mastermind, quote-unquote mastermind, had organized the abduction of Kim. She was bounded, gagged, and left in the freezing basement of an abandoned house in a Queens neighborhood, Woodhaven, Queens, all in the wasted expectation of trying to extract ransom from her father. However, the dumbasses called from a payphone. You guys remember payphones back in the 90s? <laughs> anyway, um, again, this is probably just something that millennials will understand or resonate or relate with because, I mean, payphones don't even exist anymore in today's society. But anyway, the dumbasses called from a payphone, and as soon as it sounded like the receiver was picked up, dumbass number one or whoever would hit the play button on the recorder playing a pre-recorded ransom demand. Only Senor Dumbass didn't realize that he had pressed play with the recording talking over the answering machine greeting. He didn't wait until after the beep if you need me to spell it out for you. See, this mastermind was actually really stupid. When the plans fell through, he and his other looser friends panicked returned to the basement and doused an almost frozen Kim with gasoline, setting her on fire. When the fire was extinguished, all that was left were her charred, lifeless remains. You know, I really doubt that the girlfriend, the baby mama, um, didn't know what was going on. I, I mean, so this all came about because she was friends with the baby mama and that's how they ended up living with Kim because Kim had that extra bedroom in her apartment her dad got her an apartment in brooklyn also got her like a white honda accord i think I, I can't remember if it was a honda accord or a honda civic so she was an only child she was well to do the father lived in staten island and the mother they, the parents were divorced and the mother lived in florida and the reason why the dad had gotten her a two-bedroom apartment was so that the mother would have somewhere to stay 
when she came up from Florida to visit her. So anyway, and you're not going to find this information on any of the blogs, by the way. So you're only getting it from this one, from this episode, this podcast, because even all the episodes that, um, like even all the TV shows that does this episode on this crime, they don't even give you all that information. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, like I was saying, I really doubt that the baby mama didn't know what was going on. I mean, she was basically living in that apartment too. There's no way she didn't know what a creep her baby daddy was. And the real sad part was that one of the guys that she used to um, kind of hook up with or, or that she was seeing for a little bit or, or maybe went on a few dates with, he was part of it too. Um like like that that was the crazy part it it was like all all these people were supposed to be her friends and and they like they were the ones that were her demise basically <sighs> anyway um the author of that true crime novel book whatever his name is Kieran Crowley. He is a New York Times bestselling author and supposedly an award-winning reporter for the New York Post. According to this author's bio, his investigating reporting on a series of dismemberment murders of prostitutes helped lead homicide detectives to a serial killer named Robert Shulman. It on his bio, it also claims that Shulman told police after his arrest that he halted his killing spree when he read a description of himself and his car in one of Crawley's stories. It's also been stated that Crawley has covered hundreds of trials and thousands of murders. I will say though that in a few of the true crime shows, um, this Crowley person, he is one of the people that are continuously interviewed as a contributor, especially for um, especially for this crime, as well as other crimes in the New York City area. Okay, so like I said, I got the Kindle version of this book because the printed version wasn't available on Amazon anymore or anywhere, actually. But from my experience, the hard copy is always better than the electronic version because sometimes the electronic version doesn't have like photos that are usually accompanied with books and, and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So anyway, I became interested in this story from watching like three different shows do reenactments of this horrible murder. I started Googling to find out more and decided to read a true crime book about it instead. I mean, this isn't Truman Capote. This isn't his, you know, sensational literary genre out back in the 1960s when he um, did his book. What was it? Um, oh God, about, about that Kansas murder. You guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, in cold blood. That's that's the book. Okay, so I mean, this this isn't really in cold blood, but it's it's still good. It's still a really good read. Um, there was, of course, also a lot of press coverage during the time of the murder and the trial back in the day when journalism still meant something besides from cable commentary. The New York Times published an article about about the trial and murder on November fifteenth, nineteen ninety six, back when newspapers were only available on print. Again, a millennial thing. <laughs> so, um, okay, so a Brooklyn man was found guilty yesterday. This was, of course, from the New York Times article of kidnapping and murder for setting a fire. A 20-year-old college student he once professed to love like a sister. 
Joshua Torres, who was at the time 23 years old, sat on move as he had for most of the two-week trial while the verdict was read, guilty on all but one of seven counts in Kimberly Antonogo's abduction and death. But he was found not guilty of killing Jose Negron, one of two men who prosecutors said helped him abduct Miss Antonogo's last year in a bizarre kidnapping extortion scheme that went awry. Okay, so like I said, these were dumbasses. These were not criminal geniuses. These were criminal morons. A sign of relief went up last. Uh, a sign of relief went up in state supreme court in Queens, where Mrs. Antonogo's family and friends have congregated every day, seeking and praying for the conviction of Mr. Torres. This is the day I have been waiting for," said Miss Antonogo's father, Thomas Antonogo's, who raised a fist in the air when he heard the verdict and took a long, hard look at Mr. Torres, whom he once considered a friend. It's a bittersweet day. It had to be done. The district attorney at the time, Richard A. Brown of Queens, said the murder was among the most savage and brutal crimes ever to have been committed in Queens. He added, the case cries out for the maximum penalty, and we will ask the courts to see to it that the defendant never again walks the streets of the city. So uh, the DA said the case cries out for the maximum penalty and we will ask the courts to see to it that the defendant never again walks the streets of the city. Mr. Torres will be sentenced. Um, he, he was sentenced the, the following month on um, December 1996, I believe. So the crime happened in 1995. The trial was in 1996, the following year. He was sentenced to uh, 58 years like 58 years and a few months i mean this guy's never getting out he's going to die in jail basically um the jury deliberated for nine hours before reaching his verdict mr torres prosecutor said kill the woman because he is a murderer and a moron mr torres's lawyer martin chandler said miss antonago's death was a horrendous crime but one in which his client played no part he said the prosecution had based his case on innuendos and lies. The lawyer said his client was framed by Julio Negron, a friend involved in the crime. Mr. Chandler said that Mr. Negron testified for the prosecution to receive a lighter sentence. Prosecutors said, however, that Mr. Negron received a harsher sentence, two to six years in prison by revealing his role in the crime. Officials said Mr. Negron was not involved in the killing, but knew about it and did nothing to stop it. So I, I don't think he was really an accomplice, but because he didn't do anything to stop it, he was kind of like charged, I guess, with being an accomplice. I'm not, I'm not really sure what he was charged with. Um, whatever it was, it was a lighter sentence because it was only two to six years that he was sentenced. Maybe it was an accomplice, maybe it was accomplice after the fact or before the fact. I don't even know. Um, he is not related to Jose Negron, who officials said helped abduct Kimberly. And Jose actually ended up being murdered himself a few weeks after Kimberly was murdered. So according to Julio Negron's testimony, Miss Antonogos died because Mr. Torres wanted money to buy an Infinity luxury car. He planned to ask Mr. Antonogos for $75,000 in exchange for the woman's release. But Mr. Antonogos said he never received the message because, again, a bunch of dumbasses, not criminal masterminds, criminal morons, which Mr. Torres and his accomplices put on an answering machine that had not yet started recording. 
The evil moron called from a payphone and pressed play on a tape recorder of a recording as soon as the answering machine picked up. He did not wait for the beep. Again, anyone remember way back in the days of payphones? <laughs> it was like a quarter for, I think, three minutes or five minutes. I can't even remember. Um, Mr. Antonogos later said he would have paid any amount of money to get his daughter back. Mr. Torres knew Miss Antonogos because she was a good friend of his romantic partner at that time, the baby mama, the mom of the three-year-old toddler girl. I mean, she's an adult now because, I mean... You know, this was way back in 1995 when the murder happened. So she's she's in her she's in her late 20s by now. That three-year-old, um, Ashley, yeah, yeah, she she might even be heading. Uh, let's see, 1990, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um. When the couple and their three-year-old child was forced to move out of the house they had lived in with relatives, she would, they, they were living with the baby mama's aunts. Miss Antonois agreed to take them in while their new apartment underwent repairs. Supposedly, they were waiting for the paint to for, for like the, the apartment to be painted or something. Instead, Mr. Torres used his time in Miss Antonogas' apartment in Carnarsie, Brooklyn to learn her routine and make final the details of his plan. In the early hours of March 1st, 1995, the police said Jose Negron and Nicholas Libretti and Mr. Torres' behest dragged Miss Antonogas from her car as she arrived home. She already pulled her car into the garage. They taped her eyes and mouth shut and bound her hands behind her back. They stuffed her in the trunk of her own car and played music to muffle the noises coming from the trunk, drove to an abandoned home in the basement of a Woodhaven Queen's house where they tied her to a pole in the basement and kept her without food, water, or blankets for three frigid days, prosecutors said. While the police and Mr. Antonogos were looking for Miss Antonogos, Mr. Torres pretended to be a concerned friend, even taking Mr. Antonogos to a junkyard to search for the car. The one thing he would not do was to pray for Miss Antonogos. When Mr. Antonogos, who is a Catholic, asked Mr. Torres, also a Catholic, to go into a church with him, Mr. Torres declined. So it was a white Honda. I can't remember if it was in a court or a Civic, but it was found abandoned, um, like in, I think, Suffolk County or Nassau County. It was still in like perfectly good condition. Of course, all the fingerprints were white. And um, the father was like so upset about it that he just sold it or gave it to somebody because he just he, he couldn't even look at the car without becoming emotional and upset. When it became apparent that they were not going to get any money, Mr. Torres decided it was time to kill her. Eugene Rupstein, the assistant DA who prosecuted the case, said in his closing arguments, on March 4th, he said Mr. Torres poured gasoline over her upper body, kissed her head, and lighted a match. The charred body was soon found by firefighters. A forensic pathologist testified that Ms. Antonogos was alive when set ablaze. Eventually, Mr. Torres told detectives that he had Help, that he had helped kidnap Miss Antonogus, but he had not killed her. A break in the case came in September 1995 when a former girlfriend of Mr. Torres told the police that he had confessed to her. So by then, him and the baby mama had already broken up, it appeared, and he was with some other girl, and this girl had went to the police to spill on him. But apparently, this girl was like involved in, in some sort of drug 
thing and she had gotten arrested and while she was in um, interrogation for her drug bust she had spilled the beans about Mr. Torres. Mr. Antonoga said that he would drive to his daughter's grave on Staten Island to tell her the news when the verdict was um, given out, the, the guilty verdict. It was it was his birthday present to her that year. Apparently this happened like during um, the, the verdict, the guilty verdict happened on her birthday. How, how weird is that? I do believe like a lot of things happen, not because of coincidence, but because of either fate, faith, or an act of God. That's, that's what I believe. Like, you know, if you don't believe in God, then, then you believe that this happened because of fate. Anyway, um, also from the New York Times, uh, printed on December 11th, 1996, there was, um, like, I, it, it says, it was nine minutes filled with tension and the muffled sobs of a dead woman's suffering mother. A Brooklyn man was sentenced to at least 58 years in prison for the kidnapping and killing of Kimberly Antonogos, who had been his friend. Um, he was already found guilty the previous month in November. Joshua Torres sat impassively as Justice Thomas A. Domenico's of State Supreme Court in Queens told him that the especially heinous and cruel crime cries out for the death penalty. But because Mr. Torres was found guilty of killing Ms. Antonokas before the death penalty was reinstated in New York, thanks to former Governor George Pataki, I mean, I, I know all of this because I'm a New Yorker, but for those who are listening to this episode from other areas of the country or even from other countries, um, the New York currently does not have a death sentence, but um, and, and it, it previously had it, but then it was like, you know, kind of it, it wasn't done away with but it was kind of like on hold on pause and then George Pataki um, the former governor who was governor at that time he had reinstated it George Pataki is a Republican Republicans are big on they are for they they are against abortion but they are for the death penalty um, so anyway the judge sentenced to Joshua Torres a maximum of 58 and one-third years to life in prison. So this guy's going to die in prison. He has not been out on parole or anything. The judge, um, judge Justice Demikos, said, I have often been asked how I feel about the death penalty while he was looking directly at Mr. Torres. And he said, in the past, I have been ambivalent about it. Um, I guess like suggesting that in his case, he probably deserves the death sentence. Mr. Torres's lawyer, Martin A. Chandler, said he would appeal. Before the sentencing, Mr. Torres, who did not testify during his two-week trial, read a statement in which he offered his condolences to the Antonogos family and insisted he had not killed Miss Antonogos, whom he called a precious jewel. As he spoke, Marlene Antonogos, Miss Antonogos's mother, Recline her head on the shoulder shoulder of her former husband Thomas and cried. It was the first time she had faced her daughter's killer since the funeral, which Mr. Torres attended. According to prosecutors, on March 
1st, 1995, Vincent Tanokas, a 20-year-old college student, was kidnapped by, kidnapped by two men working under the orders of Mr. Torres, who was a friend of Ms. Antonokas. Mr. Torres conceived the scheme, the prosecutor said, to extort $5,000 from Ms. Antonokas' father, a computer consultant. For four days, she was kept bound and gagged in the basement of a house in Queens while her abductors tried to contact her father with a ransom demand. Hmm. Yay, yay, yay. Mr. Torres, prosecutor, said dosed her with gasoline, kissed her on the forehead, and set her on fire. One of Mr. Torres' suspected accomplices was killed before the police solved the case. The other, Nicholas Liberetti, was tried, found guilty, and sentenced with the same sentence, 58 to, to life, 58 years to life. Supposedly, so this Nicholas guy, okay, he's a little, he's less known because, again, he was in the mastermind, and he did not have any direct connection to Kimberly. So the only person who knew Kimberly was um Julio Negron who also knew um Joshua Torres. They knew Kimberly. Nicholas Libretti and Jose Negron, they had never met Kimberly. So when this plot was being schemed they asked those two dumb and dumber to do the kidnapping because they wanted somebody that did not know who Kimberly was, never saw her, that she never saw them, never saw their face, anything, that she would not recognize them. So what happened was um, one of the guys, though, um, Jose Negra, no relation to Julio. They they have the same last name, but no relationship to one another, not not related to one another. But Jose Negron, he was murdered. He was killed by gun by gunshot like a, a few weeks after Kimberly's murder, supposedly by Joshua Torres, because he felt like he felt that Jose Negron was the weakest link that he had he was starting to show some remorse about what happened to Kimberly and also because he had a baby he had like a um like like a baby and that kind of like brought on the guilt even more so he was he was shot he was killed um so he he was like just shot in the in the streets <laughs> and but also um another thing was that Jose Negron lived not lived but he he was so the house that was like burnt down I think his grandmother or his aunt I can't remember but his grandmother I think lived close to that house that was burned down. That's how they knew that that house was empty. They they knew that like there was nobody in that house and that's why they decided to put Kimberly in that house. That house had no relationship to any of them. Like they didn't know the owner, the owners didn't know them, but it was a abandoned house because it was like an older woman that lived there. And then her son had, she had moved in with her son out in Long Island. So the house was just basically abandoned. I don't know if they were going to put it for sale or what, but nobody was living there. And that's why they decided to put Kimberly in the basement because they knew that there was nobody coming to check the house or whatever. And and 
Jose Negron knew about that house because I think his grandmother or his aunt or whoever lived like in that block in that neighborhood or whatever. That's how he knew about it. And so I like Joshua Torres probably murdered him as well because um, he was like the weakest link and he was also the one that could be connected to the house. But unfortunately, Joshua Torres was not found guilty for the murder of Jose Negron because there was not enough evidence. There was not enough proof to link him to that particular murder. Um, now, as far as Nicholas Labretti, he was sentenced to 58 years and supposedly he died in prison from an AIDS-related complication. I don't think he went into prison with AIDS, but you know, I mean, look, prison is brutal, especially New York prison. I mean, is Rikers Island is very brutal. Like in, in a lot of areas, um, Rikers, like, like in, in a lot of prisons, you know, Rikers, so Rikers is kind of like a holding prison until you get like sentenced, until you get your hearing. And in a, in a lot of, compared to a lot of other prisons, Rikers sometimes it's even worse than prison is like, like it's, you know, there's Attica, there's Sing Sing, but sometimes like being in Rikers, it's, it's just even, even worse than getting sentenced to Attica or Sing Sing. So, uh, I don't know. It's very possible he was probably raped in prison or whatever. And I mean, and this was the 90s. This was 1996, 1995. Getting HIV and then, you know, having it turn into full-blown AIDS is basically a death sentence, especially in the prison population. If you get infected with the HIV virus, it's like almost guaranteed that you are getting a death sentence because there, again, this was in the 90s. So anyway, supposedly Nicholas is dead and he died from AIDS-related complication. I don't think he lived very long. I think he 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 died in his 20s, I believe. Um, I tried to look up information about him. I did find that he did die, but there was not listed a reason for his death, but... There were a lot of dumpster gossip that it was AIDS-related. Okay, so the culprits could not really keep their mouths shut for long. Joey Negron, one of the kidnappers, was later killed in the streets, allegedly by Joshua Torres. However, he was acquitted through, due to lack of proof. Torres' blab of what he did to a few individuals, though, along with an ex-lover, whom he later had a falling out with. This is the ex-lover that kind of turned on him and then Julio Negron turned on him also and Julio Negron he knew about the plot but he wasn't directly involved with the plot and like also Julio I think his sister was married to like an NYPD police officer um, you know just like a regular patrolman I can't remember if it was a cousin or if it was a sister. So, you, you know, it, it was really murky. It's just crazy. I always say that, like, reality is so much more dramatic than Hollywood could ever be. It really is. 
um, the court's key witness ended up turning out to be the lead man involved in the murder, Julio Negron, no relation to the dead Joey Negron, who had briefly dated Kim and was aware of the plot. But according to him, he ultimately changed his mind. And although conveniently enough, he also stated he wasn't involved, prompting him to release the information that existed police and apprehending and convicting Taurus and Liberetti. So Liberetti's already dead. He died in prison, died young. And uh, as far as I know, I think Joshua Torres is still alive. There was a few years ago, he was trying to do like some email correspondence to get like people to um, write to him, you know, like one of those prison pen pals thing. And he was saying like, he still swears that he is innocent and all, all of this other stuff. Um, you know, he said he was going to come out and write a book about it. I I don't know. This is, you know, this is one of those cases where it's like he feels like he's not responsible. I don't know if he actually set the fire or not. He is responsible because he's the one that plotted the scheme and he's the one that knew Kimberly. But he's probably one of those guys who thinks, well, I didn't kidnap her, so I'm not responsible. This, this is their fault, you know. But obviously those two guys had no connection to Kimberly. They were doing it because of what Joshua Torres was scheming and plotting and whatever. But this is just a really, really sad, sad case. But I am happy that it is not one of those cold cases. I am happy that because there were so many players involved that it was solved because usually cases like this, they do end up being cold cases. You got to remember, this was in 1995, okay? So this is not where DNA is at the moment. Like now DNA, you could get DNA by just like sneezing on somebody and, and like you could use it a hundred years from now. But back then, you know, um, like DNA for, for crimes did not become like mainstream until the 2000s and even then it wasn't what it is now so the fact that this was a case that was solved with no dna evidence this was basically just old gumshoe police procedural investigative work so i am glad that this is a case that is solved and this is yeah one of those cases that really stuck out to me